You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. For better or worse, we can no longer live without our smartphones. I personally can't think of a person who doesn't have one. We use them to talk and text our friends and coworkers. They keep our appointments, our to-do lists, pictures, and business notes. They help us research work questions. Smartphones can keep track of our children, and they allow us to call 911 in an emergency. My own smartphone connects to my hearing aids to improve my sound quality. It's a wonder how we ever lived without them. Yet they've been here a mere 13 years, arriving on the scene in 2007. Smartphones have also become an aspect of our court process. They carry messages, photos, and information that are evidence in court hearings and trials. Yet many courts around the country forbid people from even having smartphones in the courthouse. And one can understand that position. Judges find it infuriating when a smartphone goes off during a proceeding. Criminals can use them to surreptitiously photograph witnesses and jurors. Must courts accept the fact that smartphones are everywhere? Is there a middle ground that can be reached? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by the Honorable Cynthia Cohen, retired Associate Justice of the Massachusetts Appeals Court. Justice Cohen worked with the Massachusetts Access to Justice Commission which recently issued a report on the possession and use of cell phones in the Massachusetts courts. Welcome, Your Honor. Delighted to participate. Also with us today is Jeffrey Morrow, Director of Security for the Massachusetts Trial Courts. Thanks for joining us today, Jeffrey. Pleasure to be here. Finally, we have T.J. Bement, District Court Administrator for the 10th Judicial Administrative District in Athens, Georgia. TJ, it's great having you on the line today. Thank you, Peter. I'm glad to be part of this and and to share some thoughts. Justice Cohen, let me start with you. The Massachusetts Access to Justice Commission spent a considerable amount of time studying cell phones in the courts and produced an impressive report. Tell us why smartphones in courts are still an issue. Specifically, the issue is that cell phone policies need to be sensitive to access to justice concerns as well as security concerns. In Massachusetts, this meant that we had to take a hard look at the court's heavy reliance on cell phone bans. When we began our study in June of 2018, nearly half of the 90 courthouses in Massachusetts prohibited litigants and visitors from bringing cell phones into the building but there were exceptions for attorneys, employees, law enforcement personnel, and jurors. No storage was provided in the courthouses, so litigants and visitors who arrived with a phone would be turned away, and the few who came to court in their own cars may have had a place to leave their phones, but the options for everybody else were really unsatisfactory. In a few locations, there were local convenience stores that would store the phones for a fee, and other litigants literally resorted to hiding their phones in the bushes, and still others were discouraged and simply went home. 
Not having access to phones in the courthouse created significant hardships, including those especially experienced by self-represented litigants. People who represent themselves often need their phones to display evidence, access information for filling out court forms, to use translation services, or to perform research. So it became clear to us that cell phone bans were impairing access to justice, but at the same time, we were well aware that cell phones can be misused and create very dangerous situations, including photography of witnesses, jurors, undercover officers, uh, et cetera. So after a lot of study, we came to the conclusion that it was possible to phase out the bans and replace them with other security measures that would be tailored to address the particular risks presented in individual courthouses and at a minimum uh, allow access and use when needed. And these recommendations are now in the process of being implemented. And uh, I'm sure that Jeff Morrow will share with you some of how that's going. Jeff? The report mentions problems some jurisdictions have had with gang members using their cell phones to intimidate witnesses. Now, if I've spoken with folks from the Florida courts who have First Amendment auditors who believe that they have a right to video in the courthouse hallways because it's a public building. Has Massachusetts had gang problems in the courts? And have you had experiences with these First Amendment folks? We've had experience in, in both of those cases. We have some of the examples that are common throughout the courts and in other jurisdictions with gang members uh, using phones to call other gang members when they see rival gang members in, in the courthouse, for instance, to, to summon them for an assault or a confrontation. We've had instances where individuals have photographed witnesses, photographed juror members with the intent of using that to intimidate these individuals. So we've had sort of a wide range of improper use of, of cell phones in the courts that highlights the security concerns and the issues that we're talking about here. We actually had our first experience with the first uh, amendment auditors about two weeks ago in one of our smaller suburban district courts. They came in, announced their presence, and wanted to videotape the comings and goings in our security screening station in and around it. They actually, when they were advised of our policy prohibiting that, were were compliant, stopped recording, and, and shortly after that left, left our facility. So that's our first experience with the, um, the First Amendment auditors. But we've had uh, just tens and tens of examples uh, of cases that have been affected by uh, individuals using cell phones in the courthouse, either to record uh, other individuals, to photograph them for the purpose of intimidation. Or one of our biggest problems is that they call their, uh, their associates and they summon them to the courthouse where uh, a confrontation might occur with another rival gang member. TJ. NACOM, the National Association for Court Management, is considering a resolution that urges courts to adopt policies that would guide judges when dealing with cell phones. Tell us about the origins of this resolution. Uh, in large part to um, our counterparts there in Massachusetts, as Justice Cohen referenced the, the report that their Access to Justice Commission put together, their Chief Justice brought that to his fellow colleagues at the Conference of Chief Justices, uh, they, as, along with the joint meeting that they had with the Conference of State Court Administrators, 
took up the topic and i believe it was uh, this last summer end of last summer that they jointly signed off on a resolution addressing the need to allow for smartphones and personal uh, devices to be available to litigants in court as an access to justice issue. As typically is the case, when CCJ COSCA passes a resolution, uh, they pass a copy of that onto the National Association for Court Management, often as an FYI, but also in case our constituency is interested in the topic as well. And since NACOM represents the thousands of court professionals that work in management and supervisory levels throughout the courts, we did think that this was an appropriate topic and and started it through our discussion. As was not a surprise, we had a lot of the same uh, issues and discussions that the folks at CCJ and Costco did around the issue about, yes, using a, a smartphone or other device is essential to, to many litigants in the court process, but that there were also many challenges, as Jeffrey and, and others noted, uh, with regards to folks from a security perspective, uh, for photographing witnesses and jurors and gang issues, whatever the case. So we really had a hard time sort of wrestling between all the pros and cons. Uh, and I think here in a, in a couple of minutes, I'll, I'll go through what some of those concerns are. But we've produced that resolution and have it out to our membership at the moment uh, to solicit some commentary. Justice Cohen, existing policy in many courthouses simply forbids litigants and their families from having cell phones, yet allows attorneys to keep theirs. Now, the report mentions that some people have felt like second-class citizens. What do you think is the general public's perception of this double standard? Well, the second-class citizen comments came from self-represented litigants who were understandably upset that they could not keep their phones, but lawyers could. Frankly, I think they raise a fair point that cell phone bans make it harder for them to exercise their option to represent themselves. And so far as the general public is concerned, I think members of the public view smartphones as essential tools in their lives, and they are really taken aback when they are unable to have them with them. So having a policy that uh, literally refused to allow people in if they had a smartphone uh, was causing quite a bit of consternation. Jeff, in the report, Recommendation 2 mentions training staff in best practices of courtroom cell phone management. What are some examples of those best practices? Well, I think it centers on good communication between the security staff and the court visitors, patrons of the court. As uh, Justice Cohen mentioned earlier, about half of our courts uh, at one time had cell phone bans, and we have since reduced that number. But we had another 50 or so courthouses uh, across the state that didn't have bans, and our officers in those courts learned to manage that situation. And it was often through effective engagement and communication with court users, indicating that cell phones were not to be uh, turned on and available uh, in the the courtrooms, indicating that they should put their uh, cell phones either uh, into silent mode or off and uh, stowed away. And this sort of proactive communication between the security staff and the court users is essential to controlling and managing the environment so things don't get out of hand and that phones are not used for uh, illicit purposes uh, in the courtroom, like to record testimony, for instance, or to photograph jurors or witnesses for the purpose of intimidation. 
But more often than not, there's often a, a annoying things uh, like the ringing of phones that disrupt courtroom decorum. And those are the more everyday type of things that happen and can be controlled through effective uh, communication between the court security staff and the court users. TJ, the NACOM resolution lays out several considerations involving the need to use cell phones in court, particularly by self-represented litigants. But then the resolution simply urges members to consider adopting undefined policies concerning cell phones. Shouldn't the resolution offer more specifics? An excellent question, Peter. I, I wish I could have uh, you know, one-size-fits-all policy, but unfortunately, that's not the case. And the reason being is that our state courts throughout the country vary greatly from a small city that has a city or municipal court that may only be open for traffic court purposes a couple of nights a month, and they're also you know, operating out of the city hall, to some of the, the nation's largest, busiest, and busiest courts that see thousands upon thousands of litigants in front of hundreds of judges every day. So to come up with a one-size-fits-all policy is very difficult. And just by way of the example, the, the resolution mentions a lot of the ways that litigants use their cell phones. They are using it to have notes, um, as, as the justice indicated, to access information uh, on the web, to have notes, to have emails that they're referring to, to have pictures of an, of an incident. For a lot of our self-represented litigants, they're often in a variety of situations, whether it be small claims, uh, what we call landlord-tenant or dispossessory cases, uh, an individual that rents a, a piece of property and has an issue with their landlord, often around conditions in the building that they live in, from heating and air conditioning issues to rat or mold or other infestations, that pictures or video are of vital importance. Then we see the ubiquitousness of cell phones and the information that's on them used very widely in a lot of our domestic relation cases. In divorce cases, I think you could ask judges the, today that there's probably not a single divorce case where the issue of Facebook or some type of social media doesn't come up. Um, and oftentimes that information is contained or available on a person's cell phone. The issue comes into how does that information get accessed and displayed and made available to the court short of confiscating somebody's phone and turning the phone into an evidence that has to put it be put in an evidence baggie and turned over to the court. So there's a lot of, of variance in what's going on out there with the use of cell phones. I mean, I can give you a quick anecdote on the side that I've actually seen in, in my career where we've had cell phone bans in place where judges have said, no one's allowed to have a cell phone in my courtroom because they didn't like it to ring or ding or whatever it, it would do, and it would be a distraction. And some judges were in the habit of actually finding people and holding them in contempt when their phones went off and would make them pay $20 or $50 or $100 payable to the clerk of court as a contempt. I even saw that happen to a, in a courtroom where the judge's own phone rang and he was adamant about his own policy of no cell phones in the courtroom, that right there in open court, he wrote a check and held himself in contempt and wrote a check to the clerk of court, fining himself for his phone going off in court. So to come up with a one-size-fits-all policy would be very difficult. And I think it allows our individual courts to tailor the use of cell phones to both the nature of business in that court, 
such as a small claims or a traffic court versus a high-level trial court or something of that nature allows our, our courts to see what best fits their needs and their issues. TJ, that is a great story. Now, I have a small question. The resolution uses the term cell phone. To be honest, I don't hear that term used very often anymore. Usually, it's iPhone or smartphone. Is there a reason why the resolution references cell phones? Well, I'm going to say it's probably because there's old people like myself that still call them cell phone and haven't gotten and haven't gotten with the times that our smartphones are probably smarter than ourselves and are certainly smarter than the computers that we grew up that didn't do anything other than bounce a little peg across the screen back and forth. Um, so I think we, we understand that the times are changing and, and I'm hopeful that either in the final version of the resolution or in just the common parlance of understanding a cell phone to be much more than than what it used to be implies that it is the phones and the personal assistance and communication devices that we see see today. Because uh, as we see on some of the commercials on TV, this is still a watch or this is still a phone and it still can be used to talk, but it can do a whole lot of other things these days. Keeping decorum in the courtroom has always been a challenge and is even more so in the age of the smartphone. We'll learn more about courts and smartphones after this short break. The National Association for Court Management has been a moving force in court administration for the past 35 years, and it has been a major influence in my own career. NACOM brings together court professionals from around the country and from around the world by presenting new concepts, discussing new leadership roles, and helping educate the next generation of court professionals. NACOM is consistently at the forefront of what's trending in courts today. Hi, I'm Mark Weinberg, and I'm the court administrator of the Seventh Judicial Circuit of Florida. I've been a NACOM member since its inception in 1985 and was recently honored with the association's award of merit this past summer. The knowledge I've gained and the friendships I've formed will last a lifetime and have helped shape my career in more ways than I can count. If you're already a NACOM member, get more involved. Consider serving on a NACOM committee. You can find meeting schedules on the NACOM website. If you're not yet a NACOM member, join today. Click the Join Us button on the NACOM website at nacomnet.org. That's N-A-C-M-N-E-T dot O-R-G. Be a part of NACOM. Be a part of making justice work. We're back with Justice Cynthia Cohen, Jeff Morrow, and T.J. Bement talking about courts and how to deal with smartphones. Jeff, one concern about cell phones in court is the ability to take photos or videos in the courtroom. Now, I was browsing on Amazon recently and came across a video camera in a key fob, like the one you would use to start your car. Now, I understand our focus on smartphones because they can take videos. But if someone is truly determined to video record a court hearing and shows up with something as small as a key fob, how do we protect against something like that? Well, it's a great question, Peter. You know, we, we focus on smartphones because they're the most ubiquitous and obviously accessible piece of technology uh, for this purpose. 
Not only can you make a call on it, but you can record video, you can take still photographs. And we focus on smartphones because it seems like everybody has one. But you're absolutely right. If someone came into a courtroom with a key fob or a covert camera hidden in a pair of eyeglasses like Google Glasses that are out there, the technology and the options are, are practically limitless. It's very difficult. In fact, we did have one instance on Massachusetts court where an individual in the courtroom was suspected to be wearing a pair of Google glasses, the kind of glasses that could take video recording. And that was detected by the observations of the court security officers in the courtroom. And when we see odd behavior or behavior that's out of place, it brings uh, the attention uh, of the court security officers to that issue. And it's about the only way we're going to catch it. But if the behavior is odd, if they're positioned in such a way to try to take video of, say, of a witness or of a, a jury member or to position themselves so they can get better recording of some testimony, this is probably going to be noticed by our court security staff and they'll be able to intervene and, and deal with that situation. But you're absolutely right. There's just an endless amount of technology out there that can be used for this. And it just makes our job a little bit more difficult every day. Justice Cohen, policies from the different courts that the commission reviewed seem to run from the extremely restrictive to the very liberal. Was there one policy that stood out for you as particularly worth emulating? Well, we were impressed by the features of several policies around the country and also with some practices that some courts had adopted, whether or not by formal policy or not. For example, in our report, we make special mention of a rather permissive policy adopted by the Georgia Supreme Court that can be modified as needed in specific high-risk situations. We also um, made a special mention of a somewhat more moderate model policy adopted by the Virginia Supreme Court, which we also were impressed by. We were very interested in what was being done by some individual high-risk courts in Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., and Maryland. These courts require people to place their phones in magnetically locked pouches. They get to hold on to their phones, but they can't use them unless they get permission and have the pouches unlocked by a court officer that has an unlocking device. So we really looked at a variety of approaches, and I agree completely with TJ that there is no one-fits-all solution, that there has to be uh, some flexibility. But the one constant, I think, has to be that no one should be turned away at the courthouse door because they are carrying a smartphone. What that means is that whatever policy you have, uh, when these de devices are really necessary and appropriate to be used, there has to be a way for the litigants or the court visitor or whoever to have access to use them in an appropriate manner, in an appropriate place, uh, under supervision if necessary. And that is, I think, the one takeaway that, that we got from looking at the consequences of the outright bans that we had in Massachusetts. That was simply something that needed to be moved away from. Jeff, in the report, recommendation three suggests piloting the use of yonder magnetically locked pouches. 
How much do one of these security pouches cost? How does it work? And how many would the court say the size of the Superior Court in Boston need? Well, we actually piloted the yonder pouch in the Framingham District Court, which is a mid-size suburban district court here in Massachusetts, where we entered into an agreement with the yonder company, who incidentally is pretty much a sole provider and sole manufacturer of of this type of a device. So we were able to uh, negotiate a, a price with them for a pilot and try it out. We estimated that the Framingham District Court probably had about 800 visitors a day come in and come in and go from that court. Talking with the Yonder Company, we estimated that probably at any one time, 20 to 25 percent of the total number of visitors was in the courthouse at the same time. So what we did was we contracted with Yonder for about 300 pouches. The pilot course or the the, the pilot program uh, that we ran was given to us at a discount. It was, it was $15 a month, but we tried it for about a six-month period, and we found that it was very well received by our court visitors. Instead of uh, having to hide their phone in a bush or leave it in the car or walk across the street and leave it at a convenience store for a dollar or two, these individuals could, upon entry to the court, would turn off their phone, place it into a neoprene pouch, uh, similar to the type of material a wetsuit would be made out of. It was closed with a flap uh, that was held magnetically. And as Justice Cohen indicated, it could only be opened by a special type of opener that was in possession of our court officers. And then they were given the pouch back and they could go about their business in the courthouse. Uh, and upon and uh, leaving the courthouse, they would present the pouch to a court a security officer who would open the uh, the pouch for them, give them their phone back, and they could depart and they could leave. This is pretty much a, a standard procedure. Uh, we're getting ready to pilot uh, another program in a much larger court, in fact, one of our biggest courts in the state, uh, in Worcester. We estimate that in Worcester, about 3,800 to 4,000 people come into that courthouse every day. And with estimating that about 25% of them would be in the courthouse at any one time. Just the other day, between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., 1,400 people entered the courthouse. So we're uh, working with the Yonder Company to secure 1,000 pouches. And we had to bring on extra staff to staff this program. We'll have people uh, having, you know, putting uh, phones in pouches as they uh, enter the courthouse and prior to the security screening stations. They'll take their phones uh, with them uh, in the courthouse, uh, and upon leaving, they'll visit another kiosk where an officer will unlock the pouch and allow them to take the phone and, and leave the courthouse. So we see this certainly as as a solution. But there is considerable logistics and costs that go with it, and it's quite possible that not every jurisdiction can afford this kind of thing. If I can if add, I, one of the beauties ahead. of the, the pouch solution is that, for example, if a self-represented litigant comes in and has the, the phone in a pouch and needs to go to our court service center, which is a, a self-help center, as there is one in uh, Worcester, somebody there can unlock the pouch so that the litigant can get the information needed to fill out the court forms and then have the litigant put the phone back in the pouch. Likewise, 
when the litigant goes up to see the judge, say that it's someone seeking a restraining order who wants to show text messages of a threatening conversation with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, the court officer in that courthouse can unlock the pouch so that the evidence can be displayed. Uh, we have another committee that is currently working on a protocol for the display and preservation of evidence that is on cell phones. And TJ is correct that that is a somewhat thorny issue. But in the end, the rules of evidence apply. And the, the question is, well, how do you deal with it technologically? Uh, do you make people uh, make copies, uh, send photographs? Anyway, we're, we're still working on that part. But the pouches, I think, show a lot of promise, but they will cost some money. I have to ask, have you had visitors wander away from the courthouse with the pouch still in hand? Yeah, occasionally that happens, either accidentally or on purpose. Occasionally, uh, pouches will be destroyed or uh, torn open, uh, sometimes with a uh, uh, with something like a, like a key. But Yonder is uh, is working with that issue. They're changing the materials that these pouches are, are made from uh, to make them more resistant to, to that kind of tampering. But we can estimate we probably over the course of the pilot in Framingham lost about 10% of the pouches. Part of the deal we work with the Yonder company is that for a, a certain fee, replacement pouches are included so they can be replaced and they factor that in, into their pricing scheme. And Peter, I did want to chime in on, on this as well. I had actually purchased several sets of those pouches for, for use by my judges and put them out there and said, who wants to try these? And I got a few takers and I, I think they're being used on, on certain sort of more high profile cases where they want to make sure that jurors don't have access to their cell phones. They're just using it for folks that are in a trial as jurors so that during the breaks or when they're sent back to the, the jury deliberation room, when attorneys are, are debating issues or something outside of the earshot of the jurors, that they don't immediately start jumping on their cell phones and, and looking at information. A really interesting side note, just to add, add another anecdote, this past December, we had a new judge orientation with our general jurisdiction judges. I had an extra set of those bags, enough for a jury and alternates. And uh, I did a little raffle of sorts, you know, quiz with my judges at the end of that training. And you wouldn't believe how excited a new general jurisdiction judge was to get a little bag that had 15 of these little neoprene bags in it and the little unlocking device to take in on, on her first day of being a judge and to potentially use in a jury trial. So sometimes the simplest solutions solve what is a very interesting and, and challenging problem. But I think the issues still arise that we have cell phones and their smartphone equivalents very pervasive in the courts uh, and being used for a wide variety of reasons, both good and bad, that we're really struggling with. TJ, different court policies regarding cell phone usage range the gamut. However, the NACOM resolution refers only to litigants. Shouldn't the resolution also discuss court staff? Yeah, that was an issue that we debated somewhat. Again, with the one-size-fits-all discussion and saying there wasn't a way to address the issue to address all types of courts throughout the entire country, we decided to focus in on this being an access to justice issue 
in which case we wanted the focus to be on litigants. That's not to say that court staff or those that we put under the umbrella of officers of the court, and by that I mean uh, prosecutors, uh, you know, public defenders, deputies, probation officers, as well as various court staff and clerks, as to whether or not they need to be covered under that umbrella. Uh, the ultimate thinking being those would be those court staff and officers of the courts could be better handled by other policies that are separate and apart from an access to justice issue. Uh, therefore, the focus was on the, the needs of the litigants and accessing the courts in, in a way that uh, most meets their needs. That's actually consistent with what we are doing. We have a separate policy for court employees, and uh, it's done on a department-by-department basis. Finally, what advice do you have to courts around the country that are concerned that smartphones are everywhere, and it seems impossible to keep them out of the courthouse? Justice Cohen? Well, I think we have to accept the fact that smartphones and other personal electronic devices are here to stay and have become indispensable everyday tools for members of the public. Uh, And so I do think that courts need to adjust their policies and procedures to take that reality into account. Jeff? Well, I happen to agree with Justice Cohen's remarks, but I like to add that while access to justice uh, is, is certainly, I think, the overriding concern here, it has to be balanced with security. And we see cell phones used in a variety of different ways that are not all positive in our courts. I had an incident here in Boston where a gang member called other gang members to assault an individual uh, that occurred in, in the Suffolk County Superior Court here in Boston. And I saw firsthand how cell phones were used for an illicit purpose. So I think we have to be careful in how we balance our concerns for one, one priority and, and look at how it does affect overall security and safety within the courthouse. And I don't think there's an easy answer. I think this is a very complicated problem, and there is no one-size-fits-all. And I think that's why when you look around through the country, uh, you're going to find a split where in some places bans are still in place or there are restrictions on the use of phones, and in other places there is uh, access to courthouses with electronic devices, and the policies are very liberal. I just think there's a, there's a wide variety of answers here, and, and there is no single answer that's going to cover all aspects of the problem. TJ? I would agree that both Justice Cohen and, and Jeff made excellent remarks on this context that while it is an access to justice issue, and, and that's our driving force, we do have to be mindful that while they are everywhere and we need to accept that, we are also very concerned about the challenges and dangers that smartphones and, and personal electronic devices create for us in what is otherwise considered a, a pretty secure environment being the courthouse. I would say that the solution, again, is not a one-size-fits-all process, but really comes down to a conversation about education in, in the sense that judges and court staff and representatives of litigants and attorneys need to have a conversation locally about what is happening in their local courthouse. Because not every courthouse hears the same types of cases and the same type of issues and the same type of individuals coming into them. Some courthouses are also meeting places for other government offices and 
that courthouse might need to have a different cell phone or electronic device policy than one that only operates part-time or only handles certain types of cases. So it really comes down to all those involved meeting together at the local level, talking about what happens in their courthouse, who are the litigants that come before them, what are the types of cases, and what are the types of ways that, that individuals may need to use a smartphone or electronic device to make sure that they are able to interact with the justice system in an appropriate manner. So it really comes down to, to that kind of discussion. My thanks to Justice Cohen, Jeff Morrow, and T.J. Bement for speaking with us about smartphones and courts. Our reliance on smartphones and how courts can deal with them is a topic of increasing concern. We have definitely learned from the advice the three of you have given today. Justice Cohen, thanks for sharing your insights. It was a pleasure. Jeff, thanks for talking with us about your experiences. Thanks, I really enjoyed it. TJ, I appreciate your perceptive observations on this topic. Thank you. I'm glad to be part of the discussion. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Now stay with the episode after this sign-off. As a bonus segment to this episode, you can hear a recitation of NACOM's resolution number four on cell phones and courts. And remember, if you have a question about this or any of the podcast episodes, email us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. In most cases, we'll answer your question at the end of a future podcast. And be sure to catch next month's episode on courts as leaders in addressing the national opioid crisis. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. The National Association for Court Management, Original Resolution Number 4 for 2019. Balancing admission of evidence from cell phones and other personal electronic devices with courthouse safety and security. Whereas the National Association for Court Management, NACOM, has made meaningful access to the justice system for all a court tenant, and whereas NACOM acknowledges that with respect to cell phone use in courthouses, it is appropriate to balance the security risks posed by cell phone use with the needs of litigants, especially those who are self-represented, and whereas these security risks entail the potential for such a device to be used as a weapon or as a means of intimidation through video or audio recording capabilities, and whereas NACOM recognizes that cell phones have become an integral part of daily life for many litigants, serving as an essential tool for communication, research, information storage, and safety, and whereas NACOM recognizes that this trend is not limited to cell phones and that other types of personal electronic devices, PEDs, including laptop computers and tablets, also have become an integral part of daily life for many litigants. Whereas, NACOM recognizes that litigants with increasing frequency are seeking to show judges materials that are stored on cell phones and other PEDs during judicial proceedings, and are asking that it be admitted or treated as evidence. And, whereas the evidence litigants are seeking to present on cell phones and other PEDs comes in many forms, including, but not limited to, photographs, call logs, text and short message service messages, emails, video recordings, voicemail messages, and other audio recordings, social media posts, and satellite map images, and, 
Whereas, this growing trend is particularly evident during certain types of judicial proceedings, which, by their nature, tend to involve large numbers of self-represented litigants, such as landlord-tenant evictions, child custody hearings, restraining and harassment order hearings, and whereas judges presented with evidence on cell phones and other PEDs during judicial proceedings are often faced with the difficult task of striking the appropriate balance between the adherence to the rules of evidence, which must be maintained in proceedings where such rules apply, and facilitating the ability of all litigants, including self-represented litigants, to be fully and fairly heard, and, whereas, resolving both practical issues, such as whether the judges themselves should physically handle the cell phone or other PED to observe the evidence, and issues of an evidentiary nature, such as assessing the authenticity of the evidence, whether other evidence, for example, the full text message exchange, should be admitted for purposes of completeness, and whether the probative value of the evidence is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice or some other danger. And, whereas litigants, particularly those who are self-represented, often appear in court without additional copies of the evidence on their cell phones or other PEDs, thereby giving rise to issues such as the adequacy of notice to an opposing party, where the proceedings are not ex parte, and the need properly to preserve the evidence for the record and appeal, and, Whereas, judges may not have been provided with adequate guidance to assist them in dealing with these and other issues that can arise when a litigant seeks to present evidence on a cell phone or other PED. And, whereas, the National Center for State Courts, the Conference of State Court Administrators, and National Association for Court Management Joint Technology Committee identified in their Managing Digital Evidence in Courts that court management systems are not currently designed to manage large quantities of digital evidence, and which means that courts and industry must find creative ways to deal immediately with the dramatically increasing volume of digital evidence while planning for and developing new capabilities. And, whereas, courthouses, often due to budgetary limits, are not always equipped with the technical equipment or resources that might better assist judges and litigants especially self-represented litigants, in the presentation, consideration, and preservation of evidence on cell phones and other PEDs. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the National Association for Court Management encourages its members to consider adopting policies or protocols to guide and assist judges in dealing with the many practical and evidentiary issues that can arise when a litigant, particularly a self-represented litigant, seeks to present evidence on a cell phone or other PED in balance with safety and security risks that the cell phone or PED can bring with them. Adapted from a resolution of the Council of Chief Justices and Conference of State Court Administrators at their 2019 annual meeting on July 31, 2019. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. 
If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Port Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Port Management.